Our reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul surrenders his rights. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel, for if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to become as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one, outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Okay, well, we are continuing in our series in uh, 1 Corinthians, um, and we've kind of um, entitled this section, um, starting last week, really kind of through the end of chapter 10, um, Joyful Denial. Um, joyful Denial. And uh, if you remember last week, we looked at this idea of rights, um, particularly uh, the, the uh, context uh, the, with the Corinthians was, can we eat meat that's sacrificed to idols? Do we have the right to do that? And uh, Paul affirms their right to be able to do those things, but then uh, quickly comes in and says, uh, there are times where though you have the right or though you are entitled to certain things, uh, there are times where it is right to lay those things aside. There's a danger of rights, things that you have a, have a right to do, leading to a sense of entitlement. Um, and, and those things are different, aren't they? You can have a legal right to be able to, to do something um, and to avail of those rights. 
Um, but a sense of entitlement um, kind of carries a negative connotation with it, doesn't it? Because a sense of entitlement means I'm going to avail of that right no matter what. It's my right to do it, and there's nothing that, that will, will stop me from actually taking advantage uh, of using that right. And Paul's going to show us, as he did last week, just because you are entitled to something doesn't mean that you're obligated to use that entitlement. And he goes uh, from the example of meat and uh, being able to eat that. Um, you remember last week we said there was kind of this permissive party that wanted to, to have permission to use their rights. And Paul says, you have, the, you have permission to do that, but not at the expense of other people. If, those, if you exercising your rights is actually damaging, um, particularly the faith of other people, um, then out of love and concern for that person, we should withhold our um, use of those rights. Paul's now going to shift uh, from an example of uh, being able to exercise freedom in eating certain things to himself. And what we're going to see is, again, the overriding priority of how Paul determines to use his rights, to, to, determines to use his entitlements, is a framework of thinking this through. Is my using this right or not using this right, how does that impact the sake of the gospel? We're going to see that his framework of how he makes these decisions is for the sake of the gospel. That's going to be the governing uh, kind of operating system of, of how he thinks about how he lives his life. Paul was fully free, as we see. He was a slave to no other human, but also he could say that he was fully subject, that he was a slave to all. We might hold those things as they are contrary to one another, but they're not. For the Christian, it's a different kind of framework. Our freedom depends on the gospel. We're going to see Paul and Jesus over and over again tell us that we are free. We are free because of the gospel. It depends on that. Our freedom depends on the gospel. But our freedom also defers to the gospel. The gospel is going to be the thing that we defer to. It's not our rights that we are, uh, that the, is the foundation of the ground in which we stand on as followers of Jesus. We stand upon the foundation of the gospel. And Paul will show us and guide us through. There are times where we have denial, self-denial, self-control, self-denial, but it's a joyful denial. Why? Because it's for the sake of the gospel. We do this all the time, right? Parents, do we not joyfully deny ourselves? Okay, it's not, the joy's down deep sometimes. We have to dig for it, right? But when we, we make decisions, we limit our own freedoms. Um, we, we do things that we would rather not do, or we don't do things that we rather would do. Why? For the sake of our kids. We deny ourselves certain things for their sake. You might deny, you might make sacrifices for the advancement of your career, we deny things all the time for a greater good, for something that matters more to us than the thing that we are denying. And for Paul, that thing was the gospel. And for us, it should be the same. And so how does Paul kind of demonstrate this? Well, let's look at a few. We're going to look at kind of four main headings. Uh, the first one is a right gospel perspective. A right gospel perspective. And there's going to be a few things that we'll kind of sub things that we'll look at under this one. The first one we see is his gospel perspective really on his own standing of who he was, his identity, his, who he was as an apostle. Look at the first couple of verses. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen uh, Jesus our Lord? That was the main criteria to be an apostle, to be called as an apostle. You had to be a witness to the resurrected Christ. Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? Are you not the evidence of my apostleship? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Um, there's some kind of dispute um, over whether the Corinthians themselves that he's writing to are disputing his apostleship. Um, or if it's other people, other kind of groups of people that are, are disputing Paul's apostleship. Maybe trying to discredit him. I'm not 100% sure if the, if the Corinthians really are at this time. Certainly in the second letter to the Corinthians, it seems like he's addressing some of these things again. Do you remember at the beginning of this chapter, 
Um, there were some that said, well, I, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Peter. There's, there's discrepancies over who their leader is uh, or who their leader kind of should be. Um, all around their kind of like oratory skills. It's clear that the, the Corinthians wanted someone who looked like a leader, who sounded like a leader. And we know really from church history that Paul really doesn't fit that bill a lot of the times. Um, he's Jewish. Not a lot of Jewish male models. That's, you know, it's just reality, kind of short kind of folks. Not, not exactly the Swedes in stature, if I can just state facts here, right? right? Um, it, Paul even himself says that he didn't come with like <coughs> elaborate words and arguments. He's probably not the best orator. Um, there are times that Paul works with his hands as a tent maker, and uh, we think, you know, okay, you're sewing some fabric together or whatever, but a tent maker back then would have worked with animal hides, um, tanning them. Um, his hands, no, no doubt, were probably rough, maybe even stained um, from, from his work. This isn't, you know, your typical kind of someone that you're like, wow, look at our, look at our leader. Maybe this is some of the things that are going on. We, that we, we, you know, Apollos kind of fits the bill a little bit more that's here. But Paul has a right perspective on his own standing. It, it's not my oratory skills. It's, it's not all these other things that actually um, I, I stand upon. It's my calling from the risen Christ as an apostle. That, that's the thing that I'm actually standing on. It's, it's a legitimate thing. And the evidence of some of that is that he founded the church in Corinth. He, he actually was the one who planted it. So it gave him a gospel perspective on his standing. It also gave him a, the right kind of gospel perspective on his rights and his entitlements. We'll look at the next few verses. We see in verses 3, uh, he says, This is my defense to those who would examine me. Again, whether it's the people he's writing to that are trying to examine him, or if he's using this as an example, um, we're not 100% sure. I feel like he's probably using himself as an example. But he's being examined. Do you know what that feels like? You ever feel like you've been put on trial? Maybe in a, in a family relationship, maybe at work, you feel like you're under the microscope. Maybe we've, we do this to other people, right? We do this to others when they don't fit into our kind of life narrative that we feel entitled to. You're messing up my life. You're messing up the way that I think my life should go. We examine them. We scrutinize them with surgical precision at times pouring over every word of that text or that email. No benefit of the doubt. No grace. Really only seeing it through our perspective. We can put people on trial. We can examine them. And the issue that, that uh, seems to be a part of this is the issue here of financial support. Right? Paul, Paul's like, am I entitled as an apostle as, as a, a gospel minister to receive financial support. Now most, again, most scholars think Paul is using himself as an example illustration here. Um, not because he wants them to pay him. We're actually going to see it's the opposite of that. Paul won't take their money. Do you remember we looked at at the beginning the relationship with the Corinthians and these kind of public orators? Um, these people made their living um, by these speeches and philosophy. They would be essentially patrons of certain folks. They would be in their employment. They would often stay in the homes of kind of influential people. That's how they would make their money. Um, but there's a sense of those who are paying you, you are, in a sense, indebted to them, are you not? Right? It's the reason that you don't just say whatever you want to to your boss. <laughs> Because he holds the purse strings, right? You're, in a way, you're, enti- you're, you're indebted to them. Paul is actually wanting to be free from this kind of um, uh, patron-client relationship. Paul won't take their money, and he won't take it because he's wanting to avoid confusion, and he's wanted to avoid being limited by expectations. We're going to see how this plays out as it continues to go. But first of all, we might look at this idea. Um, pastors today feel this kind of pressure, right? Um, pastors who make their living from the congregation might feel scared to say certain things. Well, I don't want to offend people. I don't want to offend that. What if people stop giving? What if they leave? And what, what does that mean for me and my salary? Right? There's a precarious kind of relationship that can go on there. And part of this is what Paul's trying to avoid completely. He wants to be free 
um, from this particular context, in this particular time, um, for this. And he kind of gives, but, but he also, just like he did with the, the, the meat last week, he's going to build a case for why um, apostles, those that do gospel ministry, should feel that they have a right to earn their living in that way. And so he kind of gives these five tiers of his argument. Um, if we notice in verse 7, he says, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? He's asked the question, do, do we have a right to eat and drink? Do we have a, a right to earn our substance by, by our work in verses 4? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife as Peter did, as, as James uh, did? We see in other, other parts. Or is it only he and Barnabas who are single who, who don't deserve those things? And then he builds his argument. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its f- fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of its milk? So his first kind of tiered argument is just ordinary practice. Um, a soldier doesn't have to bring his own gun and bullets. Th- those things are supplied to him. He's willing to lay down his life, to, to possibly give up his life for that. Um, and so it's not expected that he also supplies everything he needs for war. Those that are uh, farmers, that are cultivating crops or vines, it, it would be ridiculous to, to expect them to do all that work and then not actually be able to eat any of the, of the harvest that they've planted and sown and reaped. Or a shepherd to, to, to tend sheep and, and goats, cows, whatever it is, but then not be allowed to actually drink any of the milk of, of, to, to, to actually sustain themselves by that would be ridiculous. So he, he says, even in ordinary practice, that's interesting, the examples that he gives, because in many ways, these are the kind of roles that a pastor or an apostle, certainly what Paul would have done. Paul guarded the church like a soldier. He tended, he pruned, he cultivated like a vine dresser. He protected, he guided, he cared for the flock like a shepherd. The second part of his argument is a scriptural precedent in verses 8 and 9. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. It is, is it for ox that God is concerned? He's like, certainly this isn't just about ox. No, he's concerned for our sake. It's written for our sake. The plowman should plow in hope. The thresher in hope that they actually get to reap the rewards of their hard work. So he's, he looks to a scriptural precedent as well, as well from the Old Testament. You don't muzzle an ox while it's actually doing its work. Part of this might have even been people would rent an ox. They might not have owned one, but when it came time to thresh out the grain, um, you would put an ox kind of on a threshing floor um, to help uh, do those things. So sometimes you might rent an ox, but you wouldn't return an ox that you had rented in a, we- in a weakened state. You would take care of it while you were um, using it, while you were borrowing it. And in the same way, he says, those that are actually doing the work of gospel ministry, you don't want to weaken their actual state as they are doing their work. He then moves on to a common sense argument in verses 11 and 12. If we've sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Again, I think the others that he's referring to are these kind of patrons that would, you're willing to, these others have a claim on you. You're willing to pay others for this type of work, and it's not spiritual work. How much more so um, for those that are actually sowing spiritual seeds into your life? And then he points to religious custom. What was the religious custom in verse 13? Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? Um, this is, Paul's obviously uh, a Jew, thinking back to Jewish uh, custom in the temple, the Levites, um, that was their job. To, they were set aside as, as a tribe, as a group, to serve in the temple. And because they were doing that, weren't working as farmers, they weren't working as other ways to earn a living, and so they were able to take a portion of what was sacrificed, the food that was offered, as, as a way to sustain themselves. Uh, this wasn't just in the Jewish temple. This was a pagan practice as well. Priests that served in the temple, um, because they were set aside to do those things, they, they didn't, we weren't out working another job, received their living from a portion of the food that was offered. 
So he looks at religious custom. In the New Testament, we know that the temple is gone, that now there aren't priests. There's one high priest in Jesus, Um, that we are all priests in the temple of God. We are all to be about gospel ministry. And yet, in the New Testament, we see there are priests from all of us as a family that are set aside. And they're set aside for, for certain kind of work, to devote their time to word and prayer ministry, to be able to do the things that we see of caring for, overseeing, tending the flock. And those people even in the New Testament that were set aside for that, um, similar to setting aside in the temple, were supported by everybody else in the temple. Set aside to devote ourselves to word and prayer ministry, um, to be able to do the work of the ministry. We're able to do um, the work of the ministry in ways that would be hindered if we were working a, another full-time job. And sometimes that's the case. There are times where Paul receives money for his support, and there's times where he works um, to support himself. Um, what's happening here is he's not taking money from Corinth um, for reasons that we're uncovering now. How is he making his living now? Um, we see in 2 Corinthians, he's actually being supported by another church. So it's the church in Macedonia is sending Paul and wanting Paul to be able to go and plant churches, and so they're supporting him as he's on the road. That means he doesn't have to take money from Corinth, and that's good because it's a sticky, tricky situation that would actually be detrimental to the gospel to do that in Corinth. And then the last part of his argument is the teachings of Jesus himself, right? Um, uh, Where are we at here? Uh, Verse 14, in the same way the Lord, that's Jesus, commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Um, this is probably an allusion to Matthew 10.10, 10, when Jesus is sending out uh, the laborers, and he says, don't worry about taking a money bag. Don't, don't worry about you know, uh, uh, securing enough financial provision for yourself before you go out. Um, the laborers deserve his food. Those as you go will provide for you as you go. So even Jesus himself points to um, those who labor in the gospel um, earning their living by that. So there's this five-tier argument that he sets out here, right? And we all have basic inalienable rights. It's how we function as a civil society. We have certain laws um, that we go by. We all deserve to, be, to not be enslaved. We all deserve not to be lied to, to, be che- to not be cheated. We all deserve to be paid an honest day's work for an honest day's um, a, a wage for an honest day's work. But we also see his gospel perspective on his calling as well. So he's demonstrating a right gospel perspective. We've kind of under that first heading, this is the third part of that that we're looking at. His own standing, his own kind of rights and entitlements, but also the right gospel perspective on his calling. Look at verse 15 to 18. But I've made no use of any of these rights. So he's just built this case. I do have the rights. I'm entitled, as it were, to receive money from you. And and it seems like the Corinthians are actually wanting to do that. But he's like, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to set aside those rights. I'm not making use of these rights. Nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. I'm not doing this to make you feel guilty. I'm not doing this so that you'll finally start paying me. He's like, that's not what this is about at all. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. This boasting is that he's, he's actually doing the labor for them without being paid. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For I do this not of my own, for, for if I do this of my own will, I will have a reward. But if not my own will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. He has a right gospel perspective on his calling. Paul, after defining his rights, then refuses them. He doesn't want their money. He doesn't want to be encumbered um, by any of this. Look at 2 Corinthians. We're going to get another kind of insight into some of his thinking. So go to the next book in chapter 11, verses 7 to 13.
He asked the question, or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? So you, hear, you can almost kind of see the tension there. He's refusing to take their money. Almost kind of an insult is how they're seeing it, right? He says, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. Obviously, the words he's using here are hyperbolic. He didn't actually steal from them, right? So he's, he's taken from them. And, and when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening, burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? Is it, do I do this because I don't love you, because I don't care for you? He says, God knows I do. And what I am doing, I will continue to do. Why? So I'm, gonna, I'm not going to take your money. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to minister among you free of charge. Why? In order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasting mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false prophets, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. So we get insight into what's going on here. There are charlatans amongst them. There are people who are wanting to come um, as kind of these false prophets, but they're doing it for gain. They're doing it for financial gain. Happy, looking to take their financial support. They're not legit, though. They're not actually apostles. And Paul Paul says one way that I'm going to actually differentiate between who's legit and who's not is I'm going to do it for free. There could be no question of my motive that I'm doing this so that I can get your money. Money that they're wanting to give him. He's like, I'm not going to be encumbered by the expectations. I need to be free from any of that. And I also want them, I want you to know who's legit. And notice there's kind of two parts to his motive. One, he loves them. He's motivated by his love and his care for them. He does not want them um, to be confused. That's the second part. He doesn't want them to be confused with false prophets who are in it for the money. There's lots of those things, lots of those people today who've built vast ministries, not in any kind of gospel, real gospel ministry but one that is amassing massive amounts of wealth for themselves. His clear calling is his motivation. So much so that he, he calls this kind of like Old Testament um, woe on himself. Or you remember Jesus would, would, would say woe to, to those of you who, and speaking to the Pharisees, he, does, he, he curses himself. Woe to me if I don't preach. Why? Because he had been entrusted with a stewardship. Entrusted by Jesus himself, the risen Christ, to go and preach. That's his motivation, his calling as an apostle. And what's his reward for that? Preaching the gospel for free. He's free of financial obligation to them. There's no confusing calling with earning. He's able to go completely free. Free in obedience to preach the gospel clearly. The second thing that we want to see is Paul demonstrates gospel sacrifice or gospel service. So first, he demonstrates a right gospel perspective, and now a right gospel sacrifice or service. Verse 19, for though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all. Why? That I might win more of them. This is the ironic, upside-down nature of the kingdom, isn't it? True freedom in Christ actually leads us to service of other people. That's the opposite of worldly freedom. Right? The, our, the world around us say freedom, true freedom, means you are free from everybody else. You are independent. We have this kind of hyper-individualized understanding of freedom. But freedom in Christ actually leads us to Serve other people. This is what Paul's doing. He says, I'm so free from you. I'm free from obligations of you. I'm free from taking your money. I'm so free from you that I'm going to be enslaved and a servant for you. 
Our world sees it the opposite. We want to be free from others so that we're free from actually any obligation of them. We're free from being indebted to them, which is what Paul's also looking for, but so that we could be free from them. That we can have our independence, so we can do whatever we want to do. Paul says, no, I, I want my freedom from you so that I'm completely free to serve you. This is how he talks about freedom in Galatians 5, verses 13 and 14. He says, for you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, for selfishness, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the freedom that Christ has. No one was as free as Jesus. No one was entitled to more. No one had more rights than Jesus did. And yet he lays them all aside. Why? Because his love and service for other people. Thus becoming a slave to all. And Paul does the same thing. Think about that for a minute. What kind of message would you need to hear to knock you out of the kind of director's chair of your life, as it were? Because that's our default, isn't it? Our default is to kind of see our life as a, as a, a, a movie kind of being played out, a, a script that we'd like to write for ourselves with us in the director's chair kind of directing how our life kind of goes and plays out. Every scene exactly how we want it to go, ending in the happily ever after that we've got imagined in our mind, whatever that is for you. But what kind of message would need to impact our hearts so much that we'd be willing to get out of the director's chair? What kind of news would have to saturate our heart and soul so much that you'd be willing to rip up the script of your life, of your family's life, to give up those entitlements that are strewn throughout that script, to kind of give up on the act altogether, to allow somebody else to sit in the director's chair, someone else to write that script for your life. One that actually isn't about you at all. To write you into a greater narrative, a greater story. One in which you aren't the center of the universe, but someone else is. And we, serving that person, are completely free. Free from our own kind of self-interest, free from our own kind of navel-gazing, our own self-obsession, free to actually be the people we were created to be. Tim Keller rightly points this out. We, we get freedom wrong. We think about freedom being completely independent and free from everything else. But true freedom is you being free to be what you were actually created to be. So he gives the example of a fish. The fish doesn't want to be enslaved anymore by water. It doesn't want to be encumbered by this water anymore. It wants to get up on land. It wants to be free to do that. So he flops himself up onto the, to the dock. Ah, freedom at last. Until he's dead. Because <laughs> he was never designed to live in that environment. He's as free as he wants to be, to be as he was created to be. You and I were created for something more than ourselves. More than just living a life focused on us, with us at the center of that story. True freedom then is found as we find ourselves, as we place ourselves in the environment to be who we were actually created to be. As we serve the Lord, as we serve other people. And the irony of that is we actually then find true identity and meaning and purpose and fulfillment in that. It's actually when we are at the center of the story that we, we never do get our longings fulfilled. <laughs> Ask those wealthy people. You hear those stories all the time, right? People who got all that they wanted. Fame, power, money, influence, celebrity, whatever it is. And it just wasn't enough. It never satisfies there's always something more. Getting everything they wanted, but not what they were actually created for. It doesn't necessarily mean that, all, all, that 
money or influence or fame or any of those things is necessarily inherently wrong. Don't hear me wrong in that. They're just not ultimate and fulfilling. They're not worth a life's pursuit when that's the ultimate thing that we're looking for. The gospel, being the main lens by which Paul looks through, for the sake of the gospel, says that we can stop trying to earn and achieve and purchase and deserve everything that we've been after. The gospel says, here, take it. It's free. It's it's already yours in Christ. The love and affection we've been trying to buy with carefully crafted words and romantic willpower. The gospel says, here, take it. It's free. It's yours. The respect, the dignity, the drive our overworking, never achieving enough, always searching for more. The gospel says, here, it's free. It's yours. Take it. And when you are free, when you're secure in your identity and your calling as Paul was, you're free to serve other people fully with pure motives of love and care. Paul comes and he plants the gospel among them, lays the foundation of this church, refuses to take their money. No one church plants for money anyway, by the way, just so you know. (laughs) There are way better ways to earn a living, trust me. Easier ways, not better ways, easier ways. And so the question is, are you free to sacrifice? Are you free to serve? Do you feel the freedom to give, to be generous? Or do you feel like there's something else, there's some other kind of governing factor in that? Well, once I have fill in the blank, then that's when I'll, I'll give sacrificially. Once I achieve a certain kind of entitlement or right, when I hit a certain level, that's when I'll start to, to sacrificially give to other people. That's when I'll avail more of giving my time to other people. But for now, at this season of my life, you know, I've got, I've got my script that I'm still writing. I haven't got to that point yet where others are included in that. But the gospel frees us from all of those things. The gospel gives you everything in Christ that you would ultimately need. So it's the end of all that earning and striving and seeking because all that you ever need is yours in Christ. C.S. Lewis compares it to a kid satisfied with making mud plies in in this slum, thinking, oh, this is as good as it gets, when there's a whole holiday by the sea on offer. Sometimes in our mud pie-making life, we think this is it. Jesus says there's so much more, so much freedom to be had. And the third thing we see then is this Gospel adaptability, verses 20 to 23. Paul says he's, he's free from all, but he's a servant in all that he might win some. And then he explains how he does that. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being under the law myself, that I might win those under the law. This is exactly what he, right? He says, uh, to those who don't eat meat, I didn't eat meat. Although I could eat meat, I'm not under that law, but I subjected myself to it. Why? So that I would win those people. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means, I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them and its blessings. The gospel so clarified Paul's calling and his motivation that he was willing to adapt his lifestyle for the sake of it and for the sake of others, that he would save some. He was willing to change his lifestyle. This is incredible, too, because he says, to the Jews, I became like a Jew. You're like, Paul, you are a Jew. What are you talking about? You became like a Jew. You, you are a Jew. But that's not how he saw himself anymore. He wasn't primarily a Jew anymore. He was primarily a Christian. That was was his new identity. 
so that he could then say, as, even though he was an ethnic Jew, he became like a Jew to reach the Jews. What, do you, what does he mean by that? It means that he would do things that he didn't necessarily need to do. He wasn't obligated to do if that was going to be a stumbling block for those people. So even with Timothy and Titus, his partners and his kind of sons in the faith, because Timothy was going to go with him into synagogues and kind of minister to Jews, he has Timothy circumcised, right? Now, are you required to do that? No. So much so he'll write an entire book of Galatians arguing against the, the need for that. And yet he does do that. You're like, is Paul confused? Is Paul contradicting himself? Is Paul a hypocrite? Is he just a people pleaser? No, none of those things. It's because he's so confident in who he is. It's so confident in the gospel. But for the sake and care of other people, he's like, Timothy, we're going to remove this stumbling block so that you can minister, you can come into synagogues with me, you can freely, freely do those things. Now, what's interesting with Titus, he refuses to circumcise Titus. But for the exact same reasons. For the sake of the gospel. Titus was going to have a different kind of ministry. There wasn't a need for that. He wasn't trying to just do that to make people happy. Paul had this gospel adaptability. But it was the gospel that informed his adaptability. As a Greek, as someone not under the law, he would, he would practice their culture. He would adapt to their culture. Now, notice he, he, he qualifies all that. He says he's not under the law, but he's also, in verse 24, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. He's talking about the Old Testament kind of law, right? But notice what he says, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. So he's like, I'm not going to participate in everything. I'm still under the law of Christ. So how can I participate in my culture? There might be some things that we said last week that you can fully receive, so there might be times where he's going to eat meat. There might be times where he's not going to eat meat, where he's going to not have his coworker circumcised and other times when he is. There were some things that were going to be completely off limits no matter what because he's under the law of Christ. To the weak, he became weak. He was going to remove any kind of stumbling blocks that weren't critical He wasn't going to fully assimilate into culture, but he also was going to adapt enough for them to be able to hear the gospel. And then the last thing we see that we can learn, that we can model ourselves after, is Paul's gospel determination or his gospel discipline. Verse 24, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. If you're going to run a race, try to win it. <laughs> There's no point just running if you're not trying to actually win the race. So I don't run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. He brings in this motif, uh, motif of an athlete and it's an athlete's motivation you think about an athlete, there's a lot of joyful denial in being an athlete. There's a lot of things you got to deny yourself. You're not eating fast food. You're not eating junk food. You're not staying up late. You're not, ah, I just won't go to the gym today. Like, there's a lot of discipline in being an athlete. There's a lot of joyful denial. But you do that, why? Because there's a better goal that you're trying to reach. I don't mind denying myself these things because I want that thing more than I want these things. That's why I'm not an athlete. I want these things more than I want that thing. I'd rather eat a donut than have a gold medal. Who cares? I'm like, I don't care. Like, but some people care. Like, okay, that's what, that's what they're called to, right? This is what he's calling us to. But then he, 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 he brings it into perspective. For us as a Christian, the things that we should want, the things that we should be concerned with are not a perishable wreath, so that's what they would win, right? You see the kind of Greek games and stuff. They'd win this wreath made out of, you know, vegetation. It's going to rot and fall apart. But an imperishable reward. No doubt an allusion to the crown of life that we receive. He says, I do this. Why? Lest I be disqualified. Lest he doesn't actually receive that crown of life. 
a joyful denial, gospel, gospel discipline, as opposed to the false prophets, these false apostles that weren't of a genuine faith. He has a genuine faith. I'm not going to be disqualified of my faith. And I think the height of all of his argument here is, is back in verse 23. Why does he do all of this? Why does he refuse to take their money, even though he, he builds a, a strong case for why he, he is entitled to that, why he, why he could take that money, and yet he refuses it? Why does he adapt himself? Why does he discipline himself? Why does he joyfully deny himself? Verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them and its blessings. What are these blessings? Sometimes we can read this in kind of this like colonial missionary way, right? Well, the blessings are winning, winning people, like almost like scalps, or these rewards or converts, or I've won these arguments, or maybe I've won a salary. He says, nope. The literal reading of that is that he would share in it, that he would share in the gospel with them. Not just in its rewards, but in the very nature of what the gospel is. And the gospel foundationally is about a witness who became one of us. Someone who became an insider, who felt and experienced our deepest hopes, our deepest aspirations, our deepest needs. Taking on the questions that we're asking, the things that trouble us. It's about a witness who immersed himself deeply into our fallen world. Speaking, living, loving in a way that we would understand. Because he took on flesh. Sharing everything with us. Giving us his life as a sacrifice for us. For our sin. Becoming weak so that he can win the weak. This is what Paul shares in. He shares in the gospel. He shares in this joyful denial, allowing the gospel to shape his whole life. His life took on the very shape of the gospel itself. His ministry was gospel-shaped in the way that he actually did it. And this is for us. This should be our life as well. Whether you're vocationally called to ministry like myself or the pastors or staff here, or whether your vocation is something else. We're all called as priests, as ministers of the gospel. It's just going to look a little bit different for us. Some of us will be set aside to do this kind of work, to encourage and to equip the rest of us so that you too can join in gospel ministry. But that might be at a school for you, or it might be at home with your children, your neighbors, might be at the workplace. Might be in retirement. Wherever God has us, being adaptable, changing for the sake of the gospel. Paul shares in the gospel because it shaped his whole life and ministry, and so should us. But it's also how we can do that. The gospel doesn't just show us what we should do. It empowers us so that we actually can do that. This isn't us just feeling guilty and, okay, I need to try to do more of that. No, it's the gospel that actually changes our motivation to want to do those things. I can't just conjure up care and love for other people just out of nowhere. For people that I get a benefit from, sure, my family, Friends, colleagues. What about your enemies, though? How do we love our enemies, as we're, as we're called to do? How do we serve those who don't care about you serving them? Well, that takes deeper work, doesn't it? That takes a change of our heart. That change, that, that we need a, a change of our operating systems, our motives on the inside. And that's what the gospel does. Us realizing that we could never do that on our own. That's why Jesus had to come, because we aren't those loving, caring people. We're those selfish people entitled, looking for our own rights, living out our whole life with that as our general operating motivation. 
But coming to the realization that never gets us anywhere, and it just makes our world a terrible place to live. All of us with competing values, competing motivations, trying to get ours. Jesus comes and takes all of that on himself. The one who had pure motives, the one who had right motives, the one who always loved, the one who laid down himself as a sacrifice for us, an acceptable sacrifice so that our sins would be forgiven, now gives us the Holy Spirit and enters us, empowers us into new life. That's why we say a baptism, right? Buried in the likeness of his death, raised to walk in newness of life. It's not that your life just becomes new. It's that you are a new creation. Your, your heart is, is a new heart. The seed of our desires, our motivations, becoming more and more like Jesus, empowering us for joyful denial. It's joyful denial. <laughs> because it's for the sake of the gospel. Because we understand that the script of our life is a temporary one. That there's more to this life than what is just seen, than what can be accumulated, what can be achieved, what can be consumed. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, and this is a free gift that's unoffered to you, the gospel, free of charge, all those things that you want, those deepest desires of our hearts, are all yours for free in Christ. We joyfully deny ourselves. For those, of you, for, those, for those of us that are Christians, we need to remember whose we are. We need to press into the Spirit. Allow Him to convict us of those areas in our life where we've kind of climbed back into that director's chair again. Repent of that sin. Realizing that that doesn't lead to a life of flourishing. <laughs> Not one permanently anyway. Just temporary glimpses of something that never fulfills. And allow the gospel to reframe our motivations once again. We are free from everyone, but a servant to all. Let's pray. Father, I just confess how quickly I can forget these things, how quickly my desires and motivations can, can really betray who I, who I am in Christ. We can, uh, again, just listen to um, the lies of Satan. Uh, we can just get caught up in kind of the ambition and goals and uh, what we, the values of our, our culture and society around us. Um, Father, we thank you for the, the example that we have um, in, in Paul for, for certain, but really he's just following your example. And so may we as followers of Jesus, as we receive apostolic teaching, the faith once and for all passed down, may we not just hear it, but may you, um, through your spirit, through the power of your word, drive it deeper into our hearts. May it change us. May you recalibrate our, our, our emotions, our desires um, for the sake of the gospel. We ask that you would do that powerfully even among us today. In your name we pray. Amen.